Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast, episode 33. In this episode, I speak with Julie Walter about morphology and morphological awareness. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about our guests. Also, just know that I'm usually about two to three weeks behind on my resources, so if you haven't seen them yet, they should be up very soon. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave a positive rating in Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Welcome to See, Hear, Speak, episode 33. In this episode, I speak with Julie Walter, and I will have Julie start by introducing herself. Well, thank you for having me, uh, Tiffany. As always, it's such a pleasure to be here and to be part of this important podcast that I am excited to be a part of because it, it really is reaching out to our clinicians in, and teachers in the field who are doing such important work. Uh, and so it's certainly a passion of mine. Uh, I am currently, I serve as chair and I'm a professor at University of Montana for our School of Speech, Language, Hearing and Occupational Sciences. Uh, but as you know, my passion is really in the area of research and clinical uh, assessment, intervention and screening screening uh, specifically for individuals and children who are uh, diagnosed with developmental language disorder as well as uh, those who have language literacy deficits such as dyslexia. Uh, and so uh, really that's where my background is and uh, was a, I was I served as a speech language pathologist before going back to school to become a researcher and a professor and that really is where my passion lies. Fantastic. Well, I know you've been on the podcast before. We talked about crucial conversations and listeners who haven't heard that, I encourage you to take a listen. Uh, uh, I'm not sure exactly what episode it was, but it's in the teens. And now we're here at episode 33. And I wanted to talk to you more about your content area research around morphology and morphological awareness. To get us started, can you give us some definitions of morphology and morphological awareness? Yes, certainly. So, uh, those of us who are speech language pathologists, we talk a lot about morpheme and morphemes in development from a spoken language perspective. Uh, so morphemes are the smallest linguistic unit of meaning. And uh, when uh, young toddlers are developing, uh, they develop their first words, which are often base words. Uh, you know, any any word that has meaning, such as car, uh, you know, is, is a word. But when you add then another, what we consider to be bound morphemes um, that add more meaning to it, such as the plural S to make car cars, uh, that's then changing meaning with the smallest linguistic unit of meaning, in that case, the bound morpheme, a plural S. And so in terms of our definitions, uh, we, in terms of development and definitions, I should say, young children develop inflectional morphology first, and inflectional morphology uh, refers to the uh, uh, any kind of morpheme that changes in general, that's a good way to define it. And derivational morphology is a different type of morphological uh, development, which has more to do with changing the class of a word. Um, so you adding adding the ER bound morpheme to the 
the uh, root word or base word of teach changes the word uh, teach, which is a verb, to the word class of a noun, which is teacher, right? So that's derivation of morphology. And that develops in uh, children uh, throughout one's lifetime, right? Uh, that we continue to add to that, but we certainly see that developing a little bit later uh, in, um, and then there are more common derivations such as ER or LY that we see in, in early development. Uh, but, the, you know, that's again, in a nutshell, the, the way to define morphology. So intellectual morphology is a restricted set of morphological endings due to, you know, associated with the language and it's developed early. And as you said, it starts really early, but it's typically mastered around kindergarten, whereas derivational morphology changes the word class and it develops throughout the lifetime. That's correct. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. And, uh, and in fact, when we say kindergarten, uh, that's probably has more also to do with, uh, even we think about it from a, a literacy standpoint in terms of uh, it also turns into what we consider morphological awareness. So I think we can talk a little bit about that as well. So we do think about development of spoken morphology, which is much more implicit, uh, that children are uh, mastering by kindergarten. You, you do see them accurately um, for the most part, citing tense and plurality possession in their spoken language. But then they begin to also develop this more metalinguistic awareness of how morphology can be uh, changed, just as we think of, again, the analogy of, for your listeners are likely very familiar with phonological awareness. So the awareness to manipulate and uh, uh, think about sounds as, as units uh, uh, that are, um, that uh, are a part of language, right? You can separate yourself from that language. Well, it's the same with thing with morphemes that with that metalinguistic awareness, which we consider as morphological awareness, is when children can begin to manipulate and think about units of meaning in a more explicit way. And that's really developing around kindergarten as well. Well, so on Twitter, Mark Anderson asked a question I thought was really pertinent to our discussion. And he said I could read it on on the podcast. It's related right to this, I think. So he asked, uh, something I'm struggling to understand. Morphemes are the smallest unit of meaning in a language. So how are they different in substance than vocabulary semantics and how we acquire an understanding of them? He followed up and said, I get the definition difference between morpheme and a word. A word is always standalone. But functionally, is the manner in which they learn them substantially different than words? And I would also add, how does you know morphological awareness and vocabulary relate? How are they the same and different? How do they relate to reading? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I do think researchers such as myself are actually delving into this very topic of how do children uh, learn morphology? And, and we're still learning more about this, right? But one of the things that uh, I think is, is pertinent to this conversation and specifically even from an intervention perspective is that just as noted, the base word, you learn a base word and you learn, learn a, a word in your lexicon that is a semantics uh, kind of piece. And in fact, by the way, young children, uh, they sometimes don't differentiate, uh, they have very, very general meanings of things, right? And as they, they learn and develop, they actually, they fine tune that a little bit more and maybe even develop more awareness of, of uh, morphological structures. But with that being said, I think, 
the intervention part that's important to think about is that when children learn words in a very explicit way, because we know vocabulary is so important and core to uh, children's literacy and language development, of course, uh, in school age, young school age, for example, we know that children can learn up to around, you know, 10 words in this very explicit manner in a week. And you think about, uh, that's important, but there are some limitations to that because you think of how large lexicons are, how many thousands of words children learn to be able to be fluent in, in communicators, right, or, or I should say um, effective communicators. With morphology and morphological awareness in particular, as children begin to meaning units to infer and produce new meanings, that actually becomes a strategic approach to, yes, semantic meaning, but it's, it's a different uh, way to tackle word learning, right? So an example of this would be uh, a child knows the word piglet as a little pig, and then they encounter a new word that they've never read or heard before, for example, owlet. They can infer if they know what the base word owl is and they know what piglet is, then they can infer, oh, this means little owl. And that's really a morphological strategy to infer meaning in new words, and in that case, the explicit teaching of Owlet was never given, but the child can infer a new word using a strategic approach. And so I think that's uh, an important distinctive piece about vocabulary and morphological awareness, very related, but one's more of a strategic uh, way of processing versus the others as uh, just learning a word for a word's sake. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. And I, I think that really does. And I also think it ties nicely to thinking about how morphology relates to the two primary components we know are involved in comprehension being decoding and then the language comprehension piece. So how does morphology tie to both of those? Yes, so, well, this is something I really love about morphological awareness uh, that, and it's something that's really drawn me as a researcher. As you know, Tiffany, we work on this research together that uh, I really am interested as a researcher in multi multiple linguistic processing uh, across orthography, the, the letters, phonology, sounds, um, but also now morphology in terms of meaning, that all three of those uh, areas of language as well as semantics are all very important for language and ultimately literacy success, right? But morphology is really unique and interesting and, and it's something that I find really important. Um, I think uh, based, this is based on uh, some of the terminology by Kirby and Pete Bowers. They talk about morphology as a binding agent and I really like that terminology because morphology is the meaning piece, right? And it helps with you thinking about those breakdowns of orthography, letters, and sounds, when it's linked to meaning, it provides a, another powerful component for children to uh, create um, knowledge. And so what I mean by that, so with literacy, in terms of decoding, uh, it's important, think about uh, something as simple as uh, uh, an example of where there are morphological uh, 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 pardon me, so morphological uh, units, where, where they are um, uh, come together. So for example, an IVE, this is an orthography spelling, 
but how do we pronounce it in a decoding unit when we decode? Is it if or is it I've? In the word contrive, the E makes the I say its name. It's a long vowel, right? It's contrive. That's because the I-V-E does not have any morphological meaning in that word. It's just part of the base word. Whereas in the word detective, all of a sudden you have a very different pronunciation and the reason you know that is because it's a morphological unit there and it's really uh, in that case um, indicating that it's a type of person who detects, right? And so this is one clue in reading. Um, another example would, that be, would be the SH, uh, thinking about the, the orthography and then the phonology, how do we produce it? Well, it's the morphology that gives us the clue, pardon me, how to pronounce it. It's the morphology that provides the clue as to how to pronounce. So for example, in the word misheard, it's the, the unit of the, the, the uh, the end of the first morpheme of miss to the second morpheme of heard, it's because that there is, uh, uh, that those are two morphemes that we separate the S and the H. But in the word fish, you're only going to pronounce it in what we know is the SH sound because it has nothing to do with morphology and everything to do with an orthographic rule. And so these are somewhat of implicit cues that we might not necessarily be aware of when we're reading. I don't know if children are always aware of this, but it does help implicitly to provide some clues as to how do we decode unknown words or, or pardon me, words while we're, we're reading and sometimes unknown words when we start to figure out, oh, are there two more morphemes in it, it allows us to provide uh, some uh, strategy to figuring out how we pronounce a, a word when reading. And then going forward with comprehension, uh, you brought that up, this idea that then how is morphological awareness or morphology related to comprehension? Well, we know that vocabulary is so important to comprehending uh, what is read. And just as I noted that uh, piglet to owlet analogy of children being able to infer unknown words based on morphological strategy, that also can help in reading comprehension as they can infer some vocabulary meaning to make sense of a reading passage. That's fantastic and it makes a lot of sense to me of how it's such an important binding agent, as you said, for both decoding words and thinking about how words connect with meaning, but also the comprehension aspect makes a lot of sense too. And how do, how is this, how's morphological uh, abilities, how is that typically assessed in these young children? I remember you telling me about a spelling task, for instance, that seemed really interesting to try to get at, are kids really understanding morphology? Yes, yeah, so, so this is interesting because at this time, there are very few standardized measures of morphological awareness on the market. Now, there are some uh, tasks that maybe we're familiar with, those who are in the reading or literacy world or speech language pathology world. Uh, there are some morphological uh, 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 spoken tasks uh, for us to get to at specifically, typically whether a child has inflection morphology, a plurality, tense, and a possession. There are fewer tasks getting at that derivational component, just as a note, from a spoken perspective. And then if you think about truly from a morphological awareness perspective, which really gets at the metalinguistics, which we are finding and the research is, is really proving to be very, if, 
very uh, closely related to children's literacy success, even early on. Uh, we have fewer measures available to us. Right now, they're mostly researcher-developed measures. Uh, for example, one uh, very seminal researcher in the field is Joanne Carlisle, who's been studying this for, for many, many years. And she has a task which is very classic. Uh, I refer to it as the farm farmer task, where you actually give a base word, and then you ask children to complete the sentence. So farm, my uncle is a, and you ask, you know, you're expecting the child to come up with farmer. And so those tasks, and there are some published out there, and I will certainly send some references that uh, you might be able to post on this podcast, that there are appendices and such that allow for, uh, that researchers have done a little bit of the work to provide multiple uh, targets of both inflectional and derivational. Uh, so uh, something like lemon, I'm going to make some lemonade, right? Uh, those are more derivational. So we can look at those uh, a little bit more closely in assessment. One other piece that's important from an assessment perspective in terms of one, finding out do children have uh, a mastered use of ability to to uh, have inflectional morphology versus, pardon me, derivational. But another thing that's actually important in an assessment is to think about and to identify whether children have an awareness of morphology relationships between words, be they more transparent or what we call opaque in the research field. And so what we know in terms of development that Children typically uh, understand relationships or uh, develop earlier in the early school years a transparent relationship, or pardon me, understand a transparent relationship where there is no sound or spelling shift between the base word and the uh, morphologically complex form. So for example, swim and swimming, children readily hear and even can see the word swim in swimming, and thus know that swimming is related to the act of swim, right? The, the, the actual, the, the, to swim in the, is actually related to swimming. Uh, it's a little bit more tough when there's opaque relationships. So for example, when the sound and or spelling shifts. Um, so for example, um, sign to signature. That one is a little bit, there's the word sign is retained, orthography, the spelling is, is retained in the derived form, but not necessarily the sound, right? It changed. So sometimes students aren't necessarily keen into that the word, that sign has anything to do with signature, right? Um, or even think about five to fifth. That's really opaque, right? And so those are harder for children to develop, but we still expect that by third grade, for example, they're queuing into these opaque forms. And so in terms of developmentally, uh, some of these researcher developed assessments, uh, when giving an assessment, it's important to have enough target forms that you can see uh, whether or not they're having challenges on inflectional versus derivational and or if those challenges are more so in transparent versus opaque forms. Uh, so that's a, that's a good uh, way to, to think about it in a, in a real general way. Um, just to note, though, there are researchers, one uh, I'm very familiar with of Dr. Uh, Ken Oppel, who actually is finishing up, I think, a grant out there. Um, I, I shouldn't say I think. I know I'm consulting on that a little bit with him, is that that is the goal of that grant, is to develop a standardized measure for morphological awareness. So it's coming. It's just not here yet. But right now we're using 
researcher developed uh, uh, types of forms uh, to get at this knowledge. What are some of the measures in particular? You mentioned the kind of classic uh, Carlisle measure, but what yes. are some of the ways you can measure morphology in a spelling task? And also you've done some work in dynamic uh, measurement of morphological awareness. I'd love to hear about that too. Yes, so there are some different ways that we can get at this. And, you know, one of the, the a lot of researchers have come up with the idea that really this is a multi-content, uh, uh, pardon me, a multifactorial type of model of morphological awareness in that not any one task is, is completely getting at one type of knowledge, right? So when I just gave you that example of a generation where you gave a word, a base word, and then a child generates the inflected or derived form, that's one way to assess that you're right. But other ways we can get at it, specifically even thinking about our children with uh, phonological or, um, or uh, expressive language disorders, we have to think of other ways to assess this, right? So we might do something really, um, uh, along the lines of even providing uh, uh, spelling tasks. Uh, that's one way to get this at this, where um, uh, one of my uh, research studies looks at um, do children differentially uh, think about Mars versus bars. One's a two morpheme word, one's a one morpheme word. Do they spell those words differently? And in fact, indeed, we do find that children are more likely to uh, mark the the R in bars versus Mars because uh, that they're, that's a, they're actually marking the base word in that. Um, so there's some clever ways like that with researchers that are, are coming up with some, uh, some forms like that. In terms of dynamic assessment, you're correct. Uh, that is uh, one of the most recent articles that just came out in our language speech hearing services in the schools forum, which is specifically on morphological awareness, intervention and assessment practices in the, uh, with school age children. Uh, that uh, my dynamic assessment uh, with my colleagues, uh, uh, former doc student Francis Gibson and Tim Slocum, we developed a, young, a measure for first grade students. And we were thinking about some of those relationships where we ask children to uh, actually uh, define words, but then when they, when they uh, for example, if you, you ask them for like the farm, my uncle is a farmer, when they don't come up with that answer, how do you scaffold it for them? And so some of those, that's where the dynamic assessment comes in, where then we actually would help to point out that there are two morphemes. And even through phonological cues, we might be able to give a little bit of a cue of, oh, look, there's, a, there's an ending here that you need to come up with. And by the way, those kind of dynamic assessments, just like in phonological awareness and other measures that we've looked at over the years with dynamic assessment, help us to determine when and if there are some scaffolds that we can use in treatment uh, for children to then uh, learn this important skill that we know to be important to language and literacy success. So that, that leads me, that's a nice transition to think about treatment. So you, you know, we've talked about what is the definition, you know, how does it relate to word reading and comprehension, what are some of the ways it's assessed, what do we know about intervention around morphological awareness? Yes, so we are learning more and more. And again, uh, this is a, a topic and an area that is gaining, you know, increasing focus and awareness. And, and in fact, again, if 
people are interested, you know, there, our latest issue of LSHSS that uh, I had the honor of co-editing with my uh, two colleagues here at University of Montana, uh, Dr. Ashley Moe and Dr. Ginger Collins, and Dr. Ashley Moe took the lead on that uh, along with uh, myself, that there are several articles in there that are addressing using morphological awareness as part of a multi-linguistic intervention approach. And that's a term that I use um, and have uh, uh, used in my research over the years, but it recently, for example, Louisa Motes refers to it as a structured literacy approach. I think that's another term that might be familiar to your listeners. Uh, but the essential piece is that morphology, just as we mentioned earlier, how morphological awareness cannot be necessarily separated from the sounds and letters as well as meaning. It's the binding agent. So by adding morphological awareness to our intervention approaches, where we do, for example, word sorts, uh, thinking about spelling and, and uh, uh, sounds. In fact, maybe your listeners are already familiar with uh, using spelling word sorts of, uh, of uh, um, for example, a common uh, a type of protocol or curriculum out there is uh, words their way, sorry, not a protocol, but a, a book out there that you could use uh, would be where you use uh, just thinking about word analysis. And so one of the things that you can do with that is actually set up a situation where it's more implicit learning, uh, or pardon me, uh, not implicit, sorry, uh, uh, inquiry-based learning, mm -hmm. yeah. where uh, you provide a, a situation where you have patterns of words, that the only difference in them is between uh, perhaps maybe their sound, but they're all spelled the same because the morphology is the same. So let me give a very explicit way, uh, example of this. Um, so the word popped has the t sound at the end because it has an ed, versus wagged with the d sound, and it's still spelled ED, versus um, heated, uh, where there's an ed sound, right? Mm -hmm. um, the, the reason for that is because there are the ending letters of the base words are what dictate how we pronounce this ED. But the ED is always spelled the same because it has everything to do with the meaning of past tense. And this is a really important concept that kids uh, this meaning binding agents helps them to understand why that they don't spell popped P-O-P-T, which by the way, the other thing in popped is there's a double letter, the mm -hmm. double P. And the doubling of letters is also dictated by the fact that there's an adding of a morphine. And so I think that the key here is that what we're finding with research is that when we can present these kind of word study situations, and in this case, what I would do is present many words, and the words their way, they give lots of word lists that allow you to then help children to self-discover what are the rules where they see multiple words with the double P at the end, for example, where always the ED says T. Then they start to go, oh, I see a pattern here. It's not just us telling, this, telling them the rule, they're self-inferring it and are able to then sort according to words. I do it in a fun way of one of the research studies that uh, I conducted a few years back with children with learning disabilities, um, specifically those um, at risk for diagnosed with uh, dyslexia. We found that 
helping them to do these type of word sort activities and then doing other games with it because I think we as SLPs are good at you know creating jeopardy or all those kind of things this is, these are with third graders uh, but then you can provide opportunities for them to spell and write words using their new rules but the idea here is that they've self-discovered the rules at first and in that case we framed it in the fact that they were detectives and trying to code break at any given time when they had all sorts of new sorts word sorts to then discover these rules right it does seem I know that was a long answer but I think mm -hmm. I think it helps just again to exemplify uh, what are some of these pieces that we are finding to be very effective tools to help children to learn morphology in an explicit way where they learn it as a strategy as to how to again use meaning in that case for spelling and then the inverse is also to then do uh, generation where you actually can morph words right and that's really fun too to come up with new meanings of words based on meaning alone and that and i've certainly done that with with older students too well, uh, well, really, well students of all ages. you are really good at that actually and i know yes. so many of your presentations you do that and i'm putting you on the spot can you think of one you've done that has been one of your favorites because you do it all the time. Oh, morphing new words. Well, of course. I mean, I think those of us who are word nerds, which I certainly am, and you can't be uh, a person who loves morphology <laughs> that, uh, you know, wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't love the new meanings. And, you know, you're right. You are putting me on the spot, which is fine. But I don't know if I can come up with a, a clever one. But, well, I but you've do done think... them in the past. Can you think of one you've uh -huh. done in the past? You, you know what? I can tell you a really funny example yeah. from a student. One yeah. of my students who, again, uh, I work with children specifically who struggle in this area, but I love it when they see the value and all of a sudden it, 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 um, it clicks for them. Um, Laura Green, my colleague who does a lot of work in this area, she calls it the power of the word is the morpheme, right? And um, so one of my students that we'd like to, um, usually I'll give them, again, depending on the structure, right, how much structure or support they need, I'll often give them base words or multiple prefixes and suffixes, and then we come up with all sorts of new words. Uh, one exercise I often do is uh, uh, loved when kids were really into Harry Potter, we developed new words for candies, right? Because think about that candy store in Harry Potter where, um, you know, you know what a flying whiz bot means. I think uh, J.K. Rowling's so great with her language because she has these descriptive words and she uses morphology beautifully, right? That you can see and picture something even if you never heard that word before. So we've done some of those things. Well, I will just say one of the examples of, um, I forget how, but I, we, we came up with lots of different base words, lots of different suffixes, and one of my students came up with said and had to define what um, humanitarian meant. And again, um, you can imagine, I guess my, my laugh of this is that it was, what do you think? To, to eat humans. <laughs> what was it? Because to eat humans. Oh, to eat humans. Because, <laughs> right? And this is where, this is where I love that the individuals come up with it. Well, in this case, it's a real word, but how did they come up with it? Well, because they know vegetarian, yes. right? Yes. Um, and and so, so this is the perfect example of an analogy that I love where then you see the thought process behind yes. it, right? So certainly, again, you're right, I make, make up words all the time. I don't have a good one on the spot, but I think that's a really good example of oh. really smart thinking and really going, okay, wait a minute, why isn't humanitarian? <laughs> eating humans right okay awesome. i don't know if that's a good example or not i hope i hope your listeners at home are okay with that one <laughs> no that's perfect that's a perfect example that's exactly what i was kind of thinking about i think the examples are absolutely helpful
Now, if someone's listening, an educator or SLP, and they say, you know, I need to do morphological awareness um, and incorporate that more into my treatment or my classroom instruction, and they're trying to convince an administrator, you know, what could they point to in, for instance, policy like the Common Core, or do you have some example IEP goals they could bring forward? Yes, so that's a really good point. I do think, and especially as you get into school age, uh, morphological awareness and, and this kind of uh, intervention really lends itself to the common core. And I think that we're not always, it, you may or may not be aware of it as, uh, again, as a, a literacy coach, educator, speech language pathologist, but it is very uh, across the common core, uh, including uh, science, uh, math, uh, as well as then very explicit, which you're probably aware of, the uh, you know the language goals that actually talk about using uh, Latin and Greek Greek roots, and so that that there are some explicit uh, types of Common Core uh, uh, objectives that actually link this uh, morphologically uh, the morphological strategy directly to it. But if you think about what we're being required to, to do in terms of, for example, science and using new vocabulary, that's where morphological awareness is going to come in. Because again, getting back to your listeners' comment about what's the difference between vocabulary and morphological awareness, think about science and all the new words that we're being asked to learn in our textbooks. And here is, a, I think, a, a really important thing to note. Uh, according to, to Anglin, about 90% of all unknown new words, once you hit third grade, are morphologically complex. Wow. When you think about how we're encountering texts. Mm -hmm. So how powerful is it that we provide children to think about a study, or probably a strategy, to then be able to study these new words? Because think about things like, um, oh, I'm trying to think of a, a, of a good science unit, but, uh, you know, uh, um, gosh, now I'm not, now see, I should have my examples uh, already here, uh, but, uh, you know, just most of our new scientific words yeah. are of a morphologically uh, complex form, mm -hmm. and so it really helps kids to start to infer the meanings in those reading to learn mm -hmm. types of units that we know are integrated into the Common Core. Um, so you know, think about dehydration. Okay, there's there's a good example of one. Um, there there is a multiple mm -hmm. morphemic word that uh, you know a, a child is that's part of what they're supposed to learn in terms of their core tier two words. Again, that's another, you know, vocabulary uh, term that's used in the, in the field uh, by Beck and McCune, right? But those words are typically morphologically complex, and that's really important uh, for their future learning as well, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yes. I was trying to think about, um, like, for instance, even just the coronavirus, yeah. but, you know, yes. like, what does that stand for? And it, it, and it, looks like the corona is more like it representative like the greek of a crown and it's kind of like the look of it yes and of course virus we know what that is and so yeah it's pretty, yeah it's kind it of does. Thing, right it really applies in so many everyday you know, life skills in terms of reading and comprehension it's really powerful what are some example like um goals you could have in your instruction or like if you had an uh, iep you know, what are some example goals related to yes. 
more I know you've written about this, so I just wanted to highlight some of them in case. No, that, that's exactly it. We do have, uh, I have, you're right, I have presented on this uh, in other areas and, and certainly, again, I, I will sh uh, send you along some references that I've written with fellow colleagues where we actually give example core curricular goals and then uh, help to exemplify what, what that treatment would look like, what the assessment would be. But certainly, uh, like for example, and again, uh, I don't have what right in front of me, but second grade, sixth grade, I think um, there are goals about using uh, word strategies mm -hmm. to decode. I think that's one. Mm -hmm. And again, I gave the example um, earlier of just like the, the uh, use of SH mm -hmm. uh, for misheard versus phishing, right? Why is, how do we use that to our advantage from even just a decoding perspective? So I think it, it decoding, there, were, there are goals in there. Um, and usually I think the other piece, which is not necessarily related to morphological awareness, but certainly related to what I see as an important uh, uh, piece of any goal writing is thinking about context. Mm -hmm. And so typically when I write a goal uh, in an IEP, for example, I would be writing that so-and-so uh, will, you know, be able to use the strategy of morphological inference mm -hmm. to uh, decode unknown words uh, in these contexts of reading a, a passage, right? And so I'm always contextualizing when and how that child is using uh, their this new language strategy, usually in a very functional applied context that's going to help them the most in their education. But then also I'm referring to it as a strategy. Uh, I think one thing that uh, I've noticed when I've presented on this across the country, some people will say, well, uh, for example, I talk about spelling as a really important way to address. I, I've given some examples of word sorts where children are using spelling. They spell it ED based on meaning. Well, some, for example, speech language pathologists would say, well, I don't work on spelling or my district doesn't allow me to work on spelling. And that's where I would say, well, you're really not working on spelling. You're really working on developing a foundational language skill or strategy using spelling as the tool or using reading as the tool, right? And so I think that's, I guess, the other key to that is when writing those goals, uh, thinking about what is really the mission of the goal. Uh, and in that case, it's learning the morphological awareness strategy of inferencing meaning or uh, uh, using meaning to direct uh, orthographic patterns, right? And I think that's where uh, I, I help people to think about, and I can give some really good examples, again, uh, if, the, if people are interested, some follow-up uh, references for people to see some really explicit examples across grades. But that, I guess, would be my big key in terms of when uh, you are writing goals to think about that mission, and in this case, the language foundation of it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It does strike me as we're speaking here that Teachers really need to have, uh, or anyone really doing morphological, it doesn't have to be teachers, it could be anyone, special educators, SLPs, they have to have a lot of knowledge about mm -hmm. inflectional and derivational morphology to do this. Do you have some ideas of how teachers can get that knowledge? I mean, you mean, yes. I'll give you some, give you room to answer that and then I have some thoughts too. 
Well, I'm hoping you do have some thoughts. I certainly see that uh, the science of reading, what we know to be the foundations, and of course, uh, you know, Tiffany, you and I, we always are, uh, you and I are, are devoted to thinking about um, uh, this, uh, you know, the, the scientific premise, and in this case, you know, we can even think about uh, uh, some of the models for literacy development where really language is the foundation of how we we comprehend but also in terms of decoding right and um, so uh, I, I would agree with that that then what we're looking at is that then intervention practices and those pardon me those um, training practices that are related to that science of reading um, are going to be really important and so there are some places out there uh, I will say it is sometimes uh, uh, there are some theoretical debates in the field. I think you've certainly highlighted this on your program that uh, we're sometimes focused not as much on these underlying language foundations. Um, and that is really important. That is the science of reading. So uh, yeah, I, I do have, I will say, I have some, some publications out there to get this out. I certainly present on this. There are some very uh, well-known researchers with the, the Reading League, for example, I think is a really good resource that's really uh, promoting this. But um, we need to get more out there. I will say morphological awareness is, uh, is is an important piece that's just becoming more known. I think it's one of the last linguistic pieces to, to get its highlight uh, in the sun, right? Well, I think you said too, you know, you're, you're a proud word nerd. And I think that educators teaching reading can have a similar, you know, a proud kind of, hey, I'm a word nerd and learn all about morphology and, uh, you know, just really tend to that more as a you know, on the side, because I don't know that they've always gotten it in teacher education programs and, you know, getting it through formal training, like you said, through the science of reading or through, you know, um, the reading league, but also just even taking a special interest in it through articles online and fun books, which we can get some of those resources. We will get all the resources we talk about on the podcast yes. on the website in a couple weeks from the release of the podcast uh, to give people some, some resources as they're interested. I've presented mostly uh, uh, within the work I do in, in language impaired children with you, a lot of that work, Julie, is happening with you. I talk a lot about the simple view of reading and I definitely have people ask me, where does morphological awareness fit in this? Yes. And I think this conversation has helped me to think even more about where it fits because it really fits in both. And I love yes. the concept of the binding, uh, that it really binds it all together. And it's it just so critically important and sometimes I think that the morphological aspect can be lost with the focus on word reading and comprehension and vocabulary, but it tends to be kind of almost lost because it is so critically important. It's like it's the sauce that's putting it all together. Um, yes. But that's easy to kind of unfortunately not highlight that as much. So I'm excited to talk to you about it and get this information out there and to showcase the special issue and all the resources you've discussed. I'm well, and with that, I will just say one other part that I think is really important is this idea because you and I are so focused on our children with DLD who also may or may not go on to have dyslexia, right? And we know that 50%, according to your, you know, important research over the years that we know 50% of kids with DLD may not go on to have dyslexia, but they go on maybe to have instead this reading comprehension deficit, right? And so it's really interesting, I will just say, morphological awareness along with orthography and other 
the areas that again you and I are even studying together this might be a key component that might help facilitate and I think we're, we're learning more and I certainly will say you know that's part of my research agenda but we are finding that children even who have uh, some uh, challenges in this area that this meaning component is actually helpful to them to be able to make some links between phonology and letters where we know, for example, they might have a phonological deficit, that these other areas, and including meaning, uh, this morphological binding agent might actually help them to process and and actually so it's also I think very helpful, not just from just in general children from the and certainly morphological awareness is important from a decoding single word level as well as comprehension we also see it being very important for children with developmental uh, language disorders and specifically reading deficits and some of our our actual research is showing that the children who make the most gains given information or pardon me instruction in morphological awareness are those kids with these disabilities so that's I think also a really important and key component that gets me really excited about the research. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think that's great. Thank you for making that important point because it's really critical, especially um, many of our listeners are um, working with children who have learning disabilities or developmental language disorders. So I, I'm being mindful of time and I want to make sure I ask you the last two questions I always ask every guest. I've asked you this before, um, but now I assume it's been a year since we recorded, so you might, ha you might have different answers, maybe you won't. Um, the first question is, what is your favorite book for childhood, from childhood or now? Oh, that's really funny. And you're right. You asked me this long last time and I probably thought, what is it? <laughs> um, oh my gosh, I should have been prepared for this. And now what did I, what did I say last time, right? Uh, well, I can tell you some books that I'm reading with my sons. I have a 13-year-old and a 9-year-old. Uh, and so certainly what I'm reading with my sons right now, um, from you said from childhood though? Mm -hmm. um, or it could be yes. now too, or now. Yeah. I'll tell you a series that I'm reading right now with my um, sons, both of everyone enjoys it, is the the um, False Prince. It's a scholastic series and it's really great for boy, well, for kids in general, it doesn't matter gender, um, but my boys love it. And it, to me, it seems a little bit in the, the uh, genre of uh, Harry Potter um, and that you have this hero of a young kid but there's a lot of mystery and intrigue and there's three books to it and they're in really good audiobooks with a really good narrator um, and so it's a really good uh, uh, listen in the car as well which I've been doing a lot or at home if you're just wanting to you know lay lay on the couch with your kids which is my favorite thing to do is listen to an audiobook if they tolerate that. yeah that sounds fantastic i've started doing more audible books with my five-year-old so that's that i love it i'm always looking for more so that's fantastic yes yeah so the next question the last question i ask is what are you working on now that you're most excited about what's what's getting you excited right now yeah, so thank you. You know, I think, you know, given some of the research you and I have been doing, Tiffany, and certainly in our, our NIH grant, I mean, again, you tweeted out, but I am so proud also of, you know, the recent 240 hours of in the time of COVID that we're going in and we're doing Zoom research. And again, that's a, a testament to the amazing team. I'll give a shout out to our orthographic word learning group, our OWL group. Uh, I'm really excited about, and I think, uh, 
in addition to the, the many hours before COVID hit that we have really done some great data collection to think about how these this processing of, of orthography might facilitate reading. And I guess going with that then now in terms of morphology, I certainly am seeing the same thing. And so I know I already you know, mentioned this important piece, but to me that's what's so exciting and what my goal is in research and, and what I work on every day and it gets me excited about all the other work that we do is thinking about how can we assess, screen, and treat children at a young age to prevent literacy failure as best we can or, and of course treat it and help those kids. That's really my passion and morphology and orthography and even dynamic assessment as you'll see the article you mentioned, the one that just came out, we didn't think we could assess this in young kids. We thought, oh, we have to wait till third grade. We can't, we can't uh, even don't think about morphology. You have to get phonology uh, 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 mastered before you move on. And what we're finding is now that is not indeed not the case. Children as young as first grade are uh, detecting and actually processing morphological awareness. And we're finding that as young as that time period too, that we can help children to facilitate it. So we need to find measurements to do that early, as well as um, develop more methods to, to help facilitate that. And that's what gets me going. And so uh, really it's across the multi-linguistic spectrum of how do we help identify, assess, and treat these kids. That's my passion, my love. And again, I love doing it with you, Tiffany. Oh, I'll Thank you here. for inviting such me. Yes. Such a fun collaboration. <laughs> We've each other for a long time and I've always been inspired by how you pull together all of these pieces so well and it just makes sense and to do it from early on to late it is just a joy to talk to you today and to work with you every day thank you for being on the podcast I truly appreciate your time thank you for having me check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you, making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.